0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News.
1: Breaking Views has launched its Predictions 2020 series of events. In the coming weeks, we'll be taking the show on the road to London, New York, Toronto, Paris, Milan, Hong Kong, Sao Paulo and Davos, Switzerland, at the World Economic Forum. Kicking things off in Mumbai... Amit Chandra of Bain Capital India, Rashma Anand, CEO of the Hindustan Unilever Foundation, and Mirdula Ramesh of the Sindaram Climate Institute, joined us in India's financial capital to talk about the country's water crisis. I'm Una Galani, and you are listening to The Exchange. We're here today to talk about water. It's an increasingly scarce resource. Uh, the world's water needs will rise by more than half by 2050 and few countries are as water stressed as India. We have about one-fifth of the world's population, 3% of the fresh water supply. So it's here really that we will see the consequences of warm temperatures, poverty and mismanagement collide with quite devastating consequences Um, and uh, unfortunately a lot of us here will have a ringside seat. but really we're here today to specifically look at the link between water and economic risk and to really understand how the private sector is going to be able to help us to address this problem. Um, Reshma, uh, maybe I can uh, uh, start with uh, you. You've um, Actually no, first I'm going to start with a lightning round for all of us because water is such a big, scary problem. Quick question for each of you yes or no is it fixable so I'd say yes but
2: there's no silver bullet and uh, time is short
0: I would say yes but at a decentralized level
3: uh, absolutely fixable but we got to do it really quickly
1: okay so we've set a positive tone for the uh, evening um, you know I would um, India is not the only country in the world that is water stressed. There is, there are many countries that are water stressed. Some even more so than India. Um, you know, in your work, Midula, when you've looked around the world and you've looked at these examples of countries that are similar in a similar position, you know, what does the good and the bad look like? I mean, India is where it is today. What are the two trajectories that it could go on?
0: Um, I think. All of us here know two success stories um, in water in the world, Israel and Singapore. And I think the key lesson that uh, we can all take away from what underlies their success is their ability to build a market for water innovation. right? If you can do that, you can win the water game. But in India, what we've done quite successfully over the last 50 years is make sure we stamp on. Any possible market for water innovation. I mean, a long time ago, India had a reasonable price for wa- a community price for water, and they had fabulous innovation. I mean, the tank systems that Amit, you work on, are an example of that innovation. But that's gone away, and it's helpful to understand even before we can get to where we need to go on why that happened. If you take agriculture, um, I think there was a f- set of famines that you know accompanied India's founding and uh, that set the tone for our procurement policy and when the borewell came in and the gains from the green revolution started to fade then you know um, basically politics took over and you made power free but then what you did is you created two types of farmers right you've created the rich farmers who had a free convenient and seemingly endless supply of water And then you have poor farmers who look to the sky. And then you had procurement policies that basically made a non-starter of any other crop except wheat and rice and sugarcane and maybe cotton. So if you have an innovation, like think drip irrigation, which would save so much water. And we say, yeah, more crop per drop. That's great to hear. But for the rich farmer, his water is free. So why would he spend, uh, drips need labor and you have to clean the drips, It's, it's laborious. So
1: which country has done that? Uh, Israel.
0: Well, Israel. Israel. And parts of India where they've run out of water, they've actually done it well. In our cities, India, actually I was seeing a report by WRI, Indian the Indian cities pay one of the lowest formal prices for piped water, right? Because the popular political narrative is water should be free. So, if you look at the finances of many of these people they don't encourage innovation right i mean you're not encouraging innovation at all so what you have is israel and singapore which have a high price for water add to their gdp israel adds about half a percent to its gdp singapore adds several billion dollars a year to its gdp because of water renovation in india just this year we've lost 13 billion dollars to floods right we've lost we lose several billion dollars in drought Twice a decade, Uh, and these are just direct effects. And then there are knock-on effects.
3: And then, can I I just add to what uh, Madhula said? I think she painted a very, two very good scenarios of what success. So I want to
1: know what the bad scenarios. And I was just going to
3: add to what the what do bad scenarios in water look like? I would paint three.
1: Yeah.
3: Uh, Think of the Syrian conflict. Uh, think of South Sudan, we think of these as people conflicts. The origin of both of these lie in in water. Um, Mass migrations often start for natural reasons. Both these conflicts, the origins, if you talk to anthropologists and historians, actually lie in water conflicts. Uh, And the third bad scenario, unfortunately, is the country we all live in, uh, water. If you talk to uh, people who actually uh, studied the impact of what drought has had on India, uh, you realize we paid an extraordinary price for uh, our water management policies. Uh, In many years, anywhere between half half a point to a point of GDP has been lost uh, to drought, uh, often through farm loan waivers. Um, And it's not because you know uh, our farmers have been greedy. It's basically because we haven't invested in the right uh, irrigation systems, in the right water management policies uh, and just had very faulty uh, uh, agricultural policies. Uh, Half our uh, citizens are women, Uh, they have paid a very heavy price for the fact that they don't have uh, access to water and so they've actually consistently fallen uh, behind on uh, all the SDGs. Uh, They've paid the heaviest price for uh, lack of access uh, to water. This entire northern belt, which is today suffering because of haze, the uh, entire origins of that is actually in faulty water policies. So there's actually a little bit of water in all our lives. It's not just economic, it's social, it's environmental.
1: Where does industry, I mean, we hear a lot about farmers, but where does industry fit into this picture? I mean, I know you work for the foundation, but maybe you can just give us a little perspective.
2: So I think that, uh, you know, when you talk about water in India, it's not, uh, I mean, you cannot ignore agriculture because 80% of water consumption in India actually comes out of agriculture. Industry accounts for 7%. Domestic consumption is about 7%, right? So yes, you know, we should you know, not run showers and so on and so forth, but it's also very important to understand in context where we are, right? Uh, the way industry has traditionally responded uh, on the waterfront has been very confined within the fence, so what do you do in manufacturing, how do you ensure that your, you know, your optimum you know, use of water, you're metering water, you're recycling green water, you're doing green water harvesting. But I think that the realization is that you've got to go way beyond what was good, sustainable water management in your business. And you have to look at water risk from the perspective of if agriculture fails, what are the consequences on rural demand? Uh, If conflict is a reality, these are going to be new categories of risks that we've not looked at. And uh, even from a point of view of the critical asset, if it goes missing, what's going to happen to consumption, you know, of products and services that we actually take for granted? So I think that maybe till about 10 years ago, you could have been fine by saying we'll stay within our fence, we'll be responsible corporates, you know, and we will do, uh, you know, uh, responsible practices of water management. Today, you've got to go way beyond the fence and understand that this is an issue that's going to impact the country. And you will have to do something to step in.
1: So okay. you're saying that actually the problem is really uh, not coming from businesses as such, but that the business in the supply chain is going to be affected.
2: So supply chain is also going to be affected. So, you know, there is a role that industry needs to be held accountable to, right? Which is in both the way water is used and it's disposed. So then, and there's a fair bit of regulatory noise that's going around over there. But I think Mm -hmm. that if you look at risk only from that perspective, uh, what we're losing sight of is the fact that it is depleting growth, right? Uh, We don't like to talk about agriculture and agriculture's contribution to GDP anymore. We don't talk about it as actually a significant sector that creates employment, albeit for very short periods now. And frankly, when we talk about growth, unless you know, the villages grow, uh, where are we going to meet the ambition of you know, the kind of growth rates we want to see for the economy or the, the, the large scale at which we want to you know, arrive at five years from today? So I think that's the reason why it's really critical to stop just looking at the conventional practice of you know, optimizing your water use per unit of product created, but actually, also understand that a large consumer base is going to be struggling, and how we are actually participating in in solving for the crisis for them.
1: I mean, I Amit, mean, what I mean, how would you sort of describe the link between uh, the water crisis and the economic risk? How do you see that?
3: Yeah, so Una, I think the risk is. Very clear and tangible, right? I mean, uh, as I was saying, if you really look at uh, you know the facts that Reshma was saying, first of all, we got to realize that we've been very myopic in thinking about uh, agriculture as you know some number which is in teens of our GDP, because the fact is that while it's in teens of our GDP, some number in the fifties of our population is uh, agrarian. Directly, indirectly, And therefore, reality is that uh, our politicians are always going to respond to what's that constituency going to demand, right? And rightly so. I think, you know, even whether it's political or non-political, you've got to do the right thing for them. And data suggests, and Vridhila, if you read her research, it's very evident that as climate change is becoming prevalent uh, uh, more and more. Drought is becoming not an exception but the norm. I just did this, uh, got my team to do this research last week. In the state of Maharashtra, most of our uh, districts are actually seeing drought once every two years in the last 16 years. Now think about it. All of us in this room are salaried employees. We're used to getting a check you know at the end of the month or the first day of every month. A farmer who gets uh, if impacted by drought once every 2 years, they see their in, you know, income getting decimated once every 2 years. And it's not just that, they've actually borrowed money at a rate which is 2 or 3 times higher than any one of us because farmers have the highest rate of cost of capital. And so it's not just their income getting decimated but often their life savings getting decimated every second or third year. Right? And so the Politicians then have to respond to that constituency by announcing a mega loan waiver, right? We all don't necessarily have appreciation for that, but we actually all land up paying for that, right? And then that flows through entire government finances, right? That impacts cost of capital through the entire economy, right? That lands up then impacting risk-taking ability for entrepreneurs. And we don't necessarily understand exactly what is happening but this is the reality of india for the last 50 years this impacts gdp it impacts growth rate it impacts inflation so we do not really understand what the implication of the water crisis is but it impacts all of us in very very tangible ways it's not just the cost of agricultural produce it's not just the social cost it's not just the fact that every year you know, 10 farmers are dying in the state of Maharashtra on on a daily basis, it's actually a massive economic cost that's being borne by this country on its GDP. So
1: it's not just an issue that's over there. It's
3: not an issue over there. It's actually an economic cost. And if we actually solve that economic issue, this country would be growing at a dramatically different pace. And we need to start understanding that. And... Therefore, I often ask people, we need to know who our irrigation minister is and our water minister is before knowing who our finance minister is and who our industry minister is.
2: And I think one of the challenges in water is the fact that it intersects with many aspects and arms of government, right? So at the end of the day where do you actually you know influence or where do you actually look at the right kind of capital allocation that goes <laughs> downstream so you've got you know multiple ministries and somebody suggested that there are almost 40 departments that actually have some point of intersect right. with water right uh, and i think that uh, this realization has probably dawned with the merging of two primary ministries at least but i think that what's also required in india is fundamental data, I don't think anyone knows how much water there is, there isn't, how much water is being used, uh, how much water is being saved, we just don't have enough data. I mean, there are, but I think for a country of the scale of India, uh, the quantum of data and the quality of data that we have is, you know, is a little suspect. And I think that, uh, you know, when we keep talking about what industry can do, right, let's at least get into you know this, this is a resource and it's an asset,
0: the first thing you should be able to do is count it, but, right? <coughs> but there's a reason why we don't have data, right? If you look at industries that you have invested in, how many of them actually have water reflected on either their income statement or their balance sheet? Business models in India are built on the assumption that you will have endless free water, right? So when suddenly you run into a day zero kind of situation, your business is collapsed. I mean, we were talking about uh, power, in the last panel, 40% of India's thermal capacity is in water scarce regions, right? So uh, often, industry is rounding error in overall India water consumption. But if you look at a place like Tamil Nadu and you look at Tutukoran, suddenly you see Sterlite and you see the thermal plant and you see Coca-Cola and you say, you know what, you're taking a lot of my water and you're not paying enough for it.
1: So, which begs another question, which is, I think the common understanding is that in India water is free. Should it be free?
3: So, uh, it's, a great, it's a great question, I think, uh, you know, and I think Vridula uh, uh, answered this question indirectly in her opening remarks itself, which is, if you look at successful models, this is partly what they've got right. Anything if you make free gets treated for granted. And I think by making water free, we've done a number of things. We've got a number of things wrong in this country. Um, a good example of this would be if you look at the map of India and what we grow where, you will realize that today we are growing water guzzling crops in drought affected regions. right? I mean that is absolutely illogical it's also illogical that in some of these regions for example in the northern belt we are not only growing water guzzling crops but we are actually exporting them to the rest of the world so what are those those things like you know water guzzling crops would be sugarcane cotton paddy so imagine you're growing actually uh paddy in the northern northern belt which historically was rarely grown in that belt where it was a millet and a corn culture and you are actually exporting basmati rice from there to the rest of the world
1: so what you're actually exporting water is you're
3: actually exporting water actually also means that because that area doesn't have water you're also exporting free power right so essentially you're making state electricity boards who are bankrupt already already At the expense of industry, I might add, right? So you are (laughs) actually raising the cost for the industry because industry is actually subsidizing the farmers. So it's theater of the absurd, right? So you're, and you know, uh, water efficient crops like millets, which in the West, by the way, are sold as superfoods, right? Here we feed them to cattle, okay? Uh, Which were grown in these areas, are now, (laughs) now no longer grown in these areas. Instead we grow the worst crops which are supposed to be grown in those areas and we export them to the west. So when you really step back and think about it, it is absolutely illogical and it has been done because of our faulty agricultural policies. If we just imposed some cost of water, right, or, or logically some cost of power, which is effectively in, Indi- in India, water is equal to power for, for the farmer. This ridiculous behaviour would actually stop.
1: And you, uh, just to put that remark in context, I mean, you work with farmers in some of the most hard-hit, water-scarce parts of the state, uh, which are amongst some of the most water-scarce parts of the country. (coughs) Um, So when you suggest that we should be charging for water, you understand what that would also mean.
3: Yeah, so fa- you see, yes, because uh, I do understand what that means. You have to, and Ridhala and I were talking about this offline. Um, if you were to charge farmers for water slash power, you would have to compensate them for the better pre- uh, cost for the produce.
0: Amit, can I just jump yeah. in? The richest farmers have the bowels. Yeah, the it's others not don't... all the farmers
3: that have the bowels. Yeah. So you need to make sure the farmer cares about their net income and you have to find a way to get the right net income, but at least if you start charging for water and power, at least the wrong crops won't be grown at the wrong place. That's the point.
1: So we all start, you need to start eating superfoods like millet. Well, I can tell you as a
3: one thing, and you know, we've often talked about this in in various forums. If in India actually just started consuming more millets and we just had a consumer led, you know, uh, led movement we consume less rice and more millets, we'd of course be all healthier, we are becoming rapidly the diabetic capital of the world. So we'd be all much healthier are, you know and' we'd be, be rapidly we are moving towards being the you know the, the water scarcity capital of the world as well. That would also stop happening.
1: So healthier bodies, healthier finances.: uh, Yes,
3: absolutely for the nation. And farm, the only way farmers will start moving away from paddy towards millets.
1: Reshma, I'd like to bring you in. I mean, do you agree with this perspective that we should, that water needs to have a price? So I think um,
2: there's no easy answer to this question. I think that there is a price of water. And especially if you look at, uh, you know, a farmer today is paying to, uh, you know, to take a bowl <coughs> He or she is paying as groundwater is receding to deepen that well. Uh, you know power is not all pervasive so if you look at up for example uh, the cost of water is and fuel is about you know almost 15 20 percent of the cost of agriculture so i think the farmers in some ways are paying for uh, the price of water unfortunately i think the the poor farmers of punjab become like these you know bad boys and we work extensively in punjab and i have to tell you that you know uh, the experience of sitting with Punjab's farmers is really like an out of body experience because they're sitting and quoting the MS Swaminathan report, uh, you know, recommendations to you, and you're like, okay, I, you know, there are parts of this report that I didn't know that you're informing me about. So I think that there are a lot of misconceptions about, and they say that you go around telling people that Punjab's farmers, you know, switch, over, switch on their tube wells and they go off to sleep at night. We know that we are, you know, pumping fossil water but you only pay us to grow rice, so that's the only thing we will grow. Our next generation is no longer here. Goodbye to farming and agriculture after we guys are gone. So I think that you know, in cities, uh, in slums, people are paying for water. I think what you need for innovations to be successful, for pricing to be successful, is for distribution to be you know accessible. And that is a big challenge. When we talk about water for irrigation, two-thirds of the country's farmers still rely on groundwater. our canals you know reach to only a third of the population and our efficiency of canals is one third we've spent a lot of money including in Maharashtra, which is like the 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 dam, the, the dam capital of india right so the irony of the kind of infrastructure that we've built for water and how much water actually lands You know, that needs to be solved for. I think that if you have distribution and access taken care of, then pricing becomes, you know, a real self-regulatory mechanism as well. And so, and that's a hard problem to solve for. That's like a really hard problem. Who's going to do it? Who do you do it with? You know, and are there political incentives to actually get there? The National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme today puts in 60,000 crores. Sixty percent of which goes into water conservation, right? Which means that for the last twelve, thirteen odd years of this program, we've put in a lot of money, right? One would think that the bar would have moved, and it still hasn't. So I think that there is a that pricing is perhaps an important instrument to indicate the value of a scarce resource. But I do think that we need to look at distribution and access as well. And the ones, unfortunately, who are at the front line of the water crisis don't have access. And I think as a country, we are so numb. We do a bit of a, you know, a track. This country has a water crisis only in April, May and June, right? It's just reported like that, right? right. The moment the first rains happen, and suddenly, election time. and suddenly we've all forgotten that, you know, there is an issue. Um, you know last year around this time of the year mm-hmm. we were traveling around indoor and i could see bags of onions everywhere so one of my, one of our field team members said wali hai." last year onion prices were 18 paise a kilo at mondays and look at i mean a year later so i think we've got a lot of you know issues to to solve for because before we start talking about pricing it's not just it's a political hot potato i don't think that we've actually put in enough of our you know heads together to figure out how we solve so, for distribution so then the
1: question is really what is the role that the private sector can play in contributing towards a solution i mean we know that industry is not a huge consumer of water. The majority of water in this country is used in agriculture. I think the global average is something like 70%, and India is somewhere much higher in the 90s. Um, But as you pointed out earlier, there are going to be supply-side risks uh, quite soon, if not already, for companies. And there will eventually be a risk for consumers. Currently, we're all enjoying low inflation. and then there will also be mass migration. And if we don't want to go the way of Syria, uh, which is really like quite a horrendous way, I think we can all agree we don't want to go the way of Syria, what is the role that the three of you, when you're looking at, what can the private sector contribute? How can they make a difference?
3: So I think uh, when i given Water affects all of us, and I think now at least the good news is that when I think most of us started working in water, uh, lots of people used to ask us why there's so many issues to work on—education, <laughs> health, you know, etc. Now, you know, uh, even with the PM talking about it as a major issue, I think lots of people uh, realize that's one of the maybe two or three biggest issues. So. Um, you know i think with the elevation in the uh, you know in, uh, in everybody's minds that this is a really important issue all of us have some role to play is my is my sense i think the private sector can play uh, a role in different ways first of all i think uh, we can do what we know how to do best uh, you know which is entrepreneurship innovation mm-hmm. ridhila was talking about this earlier Um, there are lots of interesting ventures happening around water which is, uh, you know, solving last mile problems in some cases solving very interesting ways to address uh, uh, the problem. I think there's this is, uh, you know, people are actually willing to pay for solutions and we are seeing some uh, very interesting approaches evolve. So that's uh, one thing, where people are willing to pay for stuff. The second is uh, philanthropic capital. Um, You know, I think uh, we are, we have uh, uh, our foundation is partnering with a bunch of others caring friends uh, philanthropic network out of bombay a number of uh, other uh, csrs to run the largest water for farmer pro- project in the state of maharashtra desilted 2500 uh, dams and water bodies in this in the state it's actually a, a pro- program in partnership with the maharashtra government we can actually expand those we're trying to work with the with other governments in this uh, across india uh, you know and there are programs like that which can be designed uh, with uh, the support of both csr and uh, uh, philanthropy to really address this issue because at the end of the day as i said uh, importantly if we address this issue it actually benefits all of us the third thing actually is um, again the private sector is very good with uh, data okay all of us have a data orientation right if we actually put our minds to work and, you know, again, ridula does a lot of this. She brings a very good data orientation. I read a lot of her papers. Um, if we can actually bring a data orientation, what's the, you know, true cost of not doing something or the cost of doing something? The other day I asked uh, one of my team members a simple question which is, what's the true cost of a kg of tomato?
1: What do you mean by true cost?
3: If you actually looked at the cost of water, the cost of power, the cost of fertiliser, I was shocked that the true cost of tomatoes you know grown in some parts of the country is actually 300 and you know odd rupees a kg.
1: Compared to how much?
3: Compared to actually if you go out and buy this in the 30s right right? now obviously the water availability is different in different parts of the uh, country but you know you realize that if we just start applying data analytics to uh, issues that you know we are uh, data that is available to us and just start applying all this familiarizing ourselves with the problems. Uh, that we face, we actually will come up with fresh perspectives. We make the world around us aware of all these issues. We'll start behaving differently as consumers. So
1: what are you proposing? Right? Like a water map? Of, like water. a true tr- cost of water map? There's a cost here. of
3: water map. There's also, we were all aware of the fact that, you know, sugarcane consumes, you know, 10 times the amount of water compared to, you know, uh, soya bean uh, or, you know, uh, uh, cotton consumes 5 times the amount of water as you know uh, some other crop i think we all basically behave differently as you know consumers or uh, uh, as users of things so i think just becoming more aware as individuals will make us you know think differently as uh as people so i think those are the three ways i think we can we can act
0: see i actually think day zero that all of us are experiencing to some level now is probably one of the best things that happened to water in day india
1: day zero meaning
0: Day zero is the day when you run out of, day zero in Cape Town, okay, means very different thing from day zero in India. Day zero in (coughs) Cape Town is no municipal supply. Day zero in India means no groundwater and no municipal supply. It's a much worse kind of day zero. But in my opinion, it's the best thing that happened for water in India, okay? And I'll tell you why. Four, five years ago, when I started investing in startups in water, I went around saying, I'll write a check if you have a half decent startup nothing okay wow. today in the last month i've seen six to seven startups in water and that's purely because of day zero it's not because of policy it's not because of anything it's because of a day zero where you have a very high price for water
1: so can, 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 so day zero has a value and there are now investment opportunities yeah i mean investment that you would earn a return on? Yes, absolutely. I mean, um,
0: it's angel investing, so it is risky. So but that's the risk, whole high risk, the, high reward. Yeah, it yes. is. It is that sort of thing, and you're getting wonderful innovation here that you're seeing now. And if you look at Israel again, in Israel and Singapore, they had a universal water price. They had a meaningful water price, but they had a tiered water price. Mm. Right? You don't charge the same water price to everything else. Mm. But coming to your role on companies. I think one of the best things big companies can do is actually act as a very supportive first customer for these startups, right? Israel's water economy owes so much to mekarot which provides a place for these startups to sit. Their first introductions to their um, uh, you know customers gives them decent feedback, like this bore charger that I was talking about. It's essentially a robot that goes down and tries to improve bore well yields. You know, give orders so what if it doesn't work for a company it's rounding error so give them feedback on projects that's something that can really help and a point on data in my house single house we have 15 water meters
1: 15 15 15 how big's your house (laughs) no no we have four (laughs) qualities
0: of water in our factory we have 100 water meters and when we went out and started putting these water meters four years ago we didn't have too many choices. Like today, you have like Wi-Fi, you know, no. analytics, everything. That time we didn't have. But what that allows us to do is it makes us help very precise actions, which then become non-expensive, right? If you have very granular data, you can make very micro adjustments,
1: and uh, that is why
0: data is so useful.
1: Freshman, do you have a wish list for the private? School? Private sector.
2: I think the private sector is beginning to, uh, you know, to do a little bit, and, and I think I would I wouldn't make the distinction between CSR philanthropic money. I think everybody's realizing that there is a uh, that there is a crying need to focus on this area, but I I feel that you know even beyond data, what we can do through CSR through philanthropic money is actually bring in a step change in our behavior towards the way we use water, right. And uh, behavior requires many things. It requires measurement, but it also requires incentives. It also requires an enabling environment, right? So, how do you do it at a consumer level? How do you do it at a
1: unit level? How do you do it at a farm level? So, how how would you, for example, propose an incentive? What would an incentive look like?
2: So, I mean, just as an example, in some of the areas where we're saying, where we're looking at farmers and helping them measure their water footprint, with the savings that they they generate, we're actually underwriting that through incentives. Because we're saying that actually, you know, why should I save water? I mean, why should the poor farmer be told that you use too much water and you should stop, you know, using so much? What's in it for him or for her? And so we're actually looking at the fact that, you know, instead of states spending so much money as part of their electricity subsidies or other subsidies, is there a very clear and compelling economic case for incentives for large scale you know water saving you know in India we, you know we say we've got the problem of half so on half our land we grow rice wheat cotton sugarcane and you know we use we generate half the unit of food for every unit of water that anybody else would use anywhere so in the world not so we are unproductive right so therefore the whole shift for farmers is significant right how do you get a farmer to actually invest in technology right Who's going to pay for it so sometimes it's just these behavior shifts and this metered or measured uh you know uh, way of looking at a consumption footprint can make the difference so i think that we've got to look at how we're going to just change our relationship with water how we're we going to use you know water judiciously it's interesting when we were growing up as kids you know in delhi um, water used to come for an hour it used to be filled up on those big you know uh tubs and I don't think anybody thought we were water scarce, right? You you bathed, you washed your clothes, you washed your utensils, all of that was there. So that means that we're fundamentally capable of doing measured consumption, you know, if it comes to that, but why wait for, you know- Guyana? Why wait for day zero? Why wait for day zero to do that? So I think that's one. The second space is how do you also look at data to help the government take smarter decisions, right? And this is a tricky space, right? Who's going to do that? But I think that it's best done as a collaborative effort than one person sticking out and saying, hey, you know, I will run this report and I have something. So that is, is, I think, it will, it, it will compel
1: us to work together. The it's third, funny, because you, you see all these, uh, I mean, we, in India, we have uh, some of the best technology companies, uh, data smart technologies, you know, TCS, Wipro, Infosys, Tech Mahindra. Um, it's hard to believe that you know if everybody put their brains together that that's is not a problem we
2: it's still. happening already so andhra for example was recognized uh, you know for its really sophisticated water management system and it's you know, it's completely data-driven, down to lacks of individual structures of you know water that exist in the states. So the states are beginning also to make an effort, and I think that it's opening up all of these possibilities. You know, but as Mridula alluded, we've got to create you know uh, the risk capital for many of these innovations to thrive. Uh, you know, we recently uh, were looking at a, a team that's figured out these flow meters for canals in India, right? now imagine if you could do that for all canals in india you would double the amount of water that's actually available right but how do you use you know your experience of building big strong businesses to help some of these ideas also to fruition otherwise they're going to die a, you know a quick death i think there's another aspect that we need to recognize as industry there's an entire job economy around water and agriculture and we're not investing in it right we need we can you know we talk about young people job
1: economy what what do you mean
2: so young people are not interested in villages to you know be farmers like their parents or whatever right we're all used to the fact that in this in our homes if we call for a plumber an electrician a carpenter somebody's going to show up so who's the water person in a village Who's the ag expert, agriculture expert, or farming expert in a village, right? And, you know, incidentally, historically, you know, when we talk about these tank systems, there was a water manager who was mm-hmm. deputed by the community. He or she decided how much water would actually go into the fields. The principle of equity and, and fairness was actually exercised, or maybe not. Uh, but, you know, if I didn't like you, I could remove you and put somebody else. So I think that I think we need to actually look at the fact that if we've got six and a half lakh villages in India, there are a significant number of jobs for you know all of these water managers, uh, these innovations, the use of you know the first mile literally more than the last mile of people who would also be able to take some of these innovations to farmers because they're created you know wherever they are, but they also need you know a large base of consumers. And I think that we have started as we're looking at supporting some of these, you know, investments and these ideas. But here's the thing, is our ambition as big as the problem? Right? And I, I suspect that, you know, maybe it's early days for all of us, right? And and as Amit you know said, why do you work in water? It's a question that people will ask you like, you know, I mean, we're asked as a company constantly, why do you do all of this in states where you don't have any factories, right? But I keep thinking that, you know, have we still reached the stage where our ambition on water is, is as big and audacious as, as the problem. And if we put our minds through, it, we might be onto something.
1: Now, I, uh, yeah, I will. Just, I just one second. I'm just going to say I know that this is a subject that might be of interest to many of you, and so I, I think we can take a couple of questions if there is interest. If there is, throw your hand up, and I'll just let Amit come to his point, and we'll, uh, yeah. we'll open it if you, if there are any questions. So
3: Rishma made a very important point. I'm just going to build on that um, about you know water <laughs> actually having some. The water has a lot of vested interests um, in both urban areas as well as uh, rural economies. Uh, not very far away from here is a, a ward called M-Ward uh, where actually life expectancy is, believe it or not, within the city of Mumbai in the early forties. Um, it's, it, it's shocking actually. If you visit M-Ward um, and you talk to any of the citizens within the ward and you ask them, um, where do you, how do you spend your money? Uh, they'll tell you that amongst their biggest expense on a monthly basis is actually on water. Wow! Okay. Uh, shocking as it seems. Um, so even that ward actually they don't have like. And a, that's
1: crazy. Water isn't even in the uh, inflation I mean, basket. It's, is it? <laughs> it's amazing,
3: right? Uh, yeah. So, uh, and it's uh, my experience in uh, rural Maharashtra is is very similar that uh, you know water actually has a has a pretty high price uh, for, for the, you know, the rural farmers as well. And interestingly, water actually has become a cottage industry for uh, many people. Um, And, you know, there was an interesting book written by Sunita Narayan about, uh, you know, uh, drought actually having become like an industry. Uh, So every time drought hits, uh, water tankers will, you know, roll through the countryside and start supplying, you know, uh, you know, water to all the folks and obviously, you know, we know who owns owns most of these uh, tankers. Um, And so the question we should, we got to really step back and ask ourselves, is it cheaper as an economy to address water as an issue or is it uh, better to keep bearing the cost of drought on a recurring basis? And I think all of us should logically know what the answer to that question is. Um, I think it's obviously going to be, we can actually unleash animal spirits in this economy if we address water systematically as an issue, but there are lots of vested interests when you go and try to address water an issue, because people know that that will actually make their dukan band.
1: Okay, well, thank you so much. Uh, a little applause for our panel here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Exchange. You can find more episodes on iTunes or wherever you go for your podcasts. You can also find more of our views at breakingviews.com. I'd like to thank Sharon Lamb and Freddie Joyner. Find us here next time at The Exchange and stay tuned for more Breaking Views 2020 predictions.